Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can uh, find us on YouTube and on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief and subscribe to the feed or the channel there. <clears throat> if uh, you want to see previous shows, you can do so directly from the website. Just click on podcast on the top menu bar. And uh, you can find both the audio and the video there. Uh, we have other resources on our websites. We have uh, a list of recommended books, um, some free movies. Uh, in fact, a really good series on the doctrines of grace, which is under the movies uh, tab on the website. Um, so go check that out. Uh, you can also um, send me uh, a message, question, a word of encouragement at uh, Jason at Logical Belief. Dot org And uh, those of you that do email me uh, on a regular basis and uh, send words of encouragement and ask questions, I appreciate those, and those are encouraging to me and uh, encourages me to keep going forward because I uh, know that uh, this is uh, providing um, some benefit out there for some of you. So uh, keep sending those, and uh, that is helpful. Also, be... Uh, just remember to, uh, if you are a regular listener um, and you appreciate the show, to please uh, write uh, a review for us on iTunes. Uh, you can do so from, um, if you have the iTunes app, um, both on your Windows PC um, or you have an iPhone with the iTunes app, you can go ahead and you can write a review for us. That would really be appreciated. Uh, also remember to subscribe to the YouTube channel and to like us on Facebook. Uh, you can also always message me on Facebook if you so desire. Some of you guys reach out to me that way. So that is completely fine. Ding dong! Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding dong! Mormons. Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your doorbell? Do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth, but it is very wise to know what they believe, and you will get Andrew Rappaport's book at whatdothebelieve.com. Alrighty, uh, today <clears throat> we're going to uh, discuss about uh, three different topics. Um, one of them is going to be addressing uh, a question that was sent to me by a listener. And I thought it was a really good question, and it was something that I've been wanting to um, address. Uh, it kind of fits into what I've been wanting to address on the show. Uh, and I haven't really done anything uh, on presuppositional apologetics, reformed covenantal apologetics, in uh, a few episodes. Uh, the last one, I believe, was um, the presentation, in fact, I did at church, uh, which I then put up on the um on the channel on the on the podcast and and in fact i believe that uh this the listener here that sent me this question um sent me this from that particular episode so he had an additional question which i thought was very good and i think uh, might be something that uh, would be helpful to a lot of people out there so we'll get to that uh but um before we jump into that i just wanted to take take a few moments i'm not going to spend a lot of time on this 
but I just want to weigh in a little bit on obviously what's going on <laughs> in our land and nation uh, at this time with the elections. So um, for those of you, I don't know if anybody's interested what my uh, opinion is on this, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it anyway. So <laughs> I have had a couple people message me and uh, take me to task, in fact, uh, for uh, some of the articles and some of the things I've posted um, on, on Facebook in, in reference to the election. Um, and so I kind of wanted to address that a little bit. Uh, one of the things that... Uh, at, at this at this point, uh, my my position is is that I will not be voting for Hillary or Trump in this upcoming election. If I do vote, I will do a write-in, and I'm not sure who that will even be at this point. Um, <clears throat> but that is my current position, and I'm going to go through uh, why I have come to that conclusion. Um, the arguments out there uh, right now for um, Voting for Trump by many evangelical Christians in which I've had people message me on Facebook, send me articles and everything is uh, is the Supreme Court nominations coming up and uh, Trump being our only hope that there be conservative um, uh, judges put on the court and uh, and that Trump, you know, has promised. <coughs> yeah. Uh, he's promised to uh, to nominate conservative um, judges to the court. My position is um, is that the system is already gone. It's it's already over. This this nation is under the judgment of God, um, and I, I don't understand why a Christian a professing Christian who lives his life in accordance to God's prescriptive will would put his hope and his trust in a man who has been a proven, I call him a chameleon, a proven liar, uh, a proven flip-flopper, um, a proven chameleon. Trump is, in every situation, uh, tries to be who he needs to be, um, not from a position of principles um, and a coherent worldview. Um, that's, that's not Trump's position. He is what he needs to be in whatever situation to accomplish his intended goal. And in this case, it is to win the presidency of the United States uh, with the Republican base. And so that, that's his goal. And so he's going to say and try to say whatever he needs to say to appease both sides, uh, not from a position of principle. Um, he's historically proven to not be principled. Um, in fact, his position on even partial birth abortion as early as the late 90s and even into the 2000s um, has changed, I don't believe from a position of principle, but from a necessity to appease um, the base that because he's running as a Republican. 
So he's going to have to change his position on that. I don't see that as a as a position that's coming from um, a principle in his heart in any way. He, Trump is a proven liar, chameleon, covenant breaker. For a, a you know, <laughs> those of you out there that are trusting in Trump to keep his promises about putting conservative judges um, on the Supreme Court, I, I don't understand how you believe anything this man says. Uh, he's not kept his marriage covenants. He has encouraged other people by seducing women, uh, married women, in breaking their covenants. Uh, when it comes to one of the most crucial covenants that provides a foundation for a moral society and for a society that functions um, and can prosper is the family. And his undermining of that particular foundation if he's willing to compromise on that, what, why would you think that he wouldn't compromise in other areas when it comes to society? I, um, I don't see any principled reason for why um, why Trump won't compromise <clears throat> when it comes to judges on the Supreme Court if he's actually elected, which the probability of that's fairly low anyway. Um, but why would you think that he wouldn't? I mean, he... What he's known for is making deals and compromising. And and uh, so what makes you think in order to accomplish some intended purpose uh, that he has um, as as president that he won't compromise on judicial nominations? I, I don't th I don't understand why anyone would think that he wouldn't do that. He, he's obviously a man who's entirely driven by his sexual desires um, and I just don't understand why a Christian would put their faith and hope in a man like this. Uh, the other thing that really bothers me is the absolute hypocrisy by many evangelicals. You take uh, Grudem's own statements back during the Clinton presidency about how Clinton was unfit for office because of his willingness to lie, um, his sexual escapades. Um, made him unfit for office. But now the same evangelicals are promoting a man who is exactly <laughs> the same thing. And the, the problem with this is, is this undermines, completely undermines the Christian church as being any sort of moral, prophetic voice or foundation at all within America. If... The, if the church is going to compromise on a candidate such as Donald Trump and give up its moral foundation, then you have no grounds at all to put up any objections for the uh, profaning of marriage um, for for any moral ground. You, you've completely lost the moral high ground if if you're willing to compromise for a candidate. And so the, the one thing that I, I just would want to point out is, as Christians, our hope should be in God. God has a, uh, from a theological perspective, God has a prescriptive will. These are the moral obligations 
that he has revealed <clears throat> to his creatures, both uh, everyone who is made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, has God's prescriptive will um, written upon their heart. Um, he has revealed it in the 66 books of the special revelation of God. And so that is what our duty as Christians is to obey and follow and promote the prescriptive will of God. It is our duty to submit to and leave God's decretive will, what he has determined to happen in time, to God. We are held accountable to what God has revealed in his prescriptive will. We are not held accountable to determine the future. That is left to God. And what really bothers me is when a lot of Christians um, will compromise on God's prescriptive will in order to try to determine something in God's decreed will. I, I, I don't really understand how, how that works there. Um, in Psalm chapter 33, I just want to read verses 9 through 15. And I think that this kind of uh, sums up some of my thoughts on this. And uh, beginning at verse 9 of Psalm 33, it says, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The, count, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven, and he sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The counsel of the Lord will stand forever. His plans from generation to generation. And so I'm going to trust in the Lord. And I, I think this is what every Christian should be doing in this situation. Um, for a man who willfully tramples on the prescriptive will of God, gleefully, um, on a daily basis, why would we as Christians um, be promoting this man and compromising our prophetic voice in this land? I don't know. I don't know why we would go there, um, but there are those of you out there that are willing to do that. And so I would uh, <clears throat> encourage you to think about this and put your hope in the God who frustrates the plans of the peoples, whose plans of his heart um, goes to all generations, and the counsel of the, this Lord, this God that we trust, uh, stands forever. And so I think it's somewhat indicative um, when we see uh, men putting all their hope in Trump. I think it, um, it is somewhat revelatory of where their hope and their trust is in. Hey, Len, we got a uh, iTunes review this week. What did it say? It says, week 1, 
Star. Oh. Uh, if you are a Christian looking for a quick fix of confirmation bias, you can find it here. Rudeness towards another from a different perspective. Inept reasoning and bully tactics are abundant. Hmm. That sounded pretty. That sounded pretty bullying. Yeah, was he bullying us? Was he was he practicing a double standard there? I think he has some bias. I think so. Well, he's clearly the president of our fan club, so you can direct all your email to him. You're listening to the Bible for the Wingnut Show, the show that's safe for the whole family. Unless your family contains professing atheists. And our New Age Bible versions. Boy, have we stirred up a controversy by saying the King James is where God preserved his word. Amen. Golf clap. BibleThumpingWingnut.com Alrighty. So <clears throat> what I want to do uh, for a good part of the show is to address a question by a listener, David. And I'm just going to read part of his email here, just the portion here that he had uh, the question in. Um, and he writes in and he says, he says this. He says, the idea of presuppositional apologetics was something that I had been thinking about for a while now before I knew it had a name. Uh, there is no certainty outside of omniscience, as far as I can tell. Better said, there is no truth foundation to be found outside of being omniscient. The fact that we are unable to determine truth of our own accord, logically or otherwise, is all too obvious. This leads to two conclusions you laid out. And he's I think he's referring to uh, one of the previous episodes about ten or so ago where um, I did a presentation on the biblical apologetic um, at our church. So he writes this, he goes, uh, this leads to the two conclusions that you laid out. Either you have to be omniscient or perhaps granted knowledge by the one who is. Um, all that being said, you mentioned that you believe God grants certainty to people. I was wondering if you could expound on that for me. Is this something that you have yourself? And if so, can you describe it for me? So I think that's a really good question. And uh, <clears throat> it is... Um, one that uh, I will hopefully be able to answer for you, David. So the the first thing that he's uh, talking about here is the claim that omniscience is necessary to justify knowledge. Um, and this really goes back to the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And... Uh, so I would encourage you, um, those of you that are newer to the show who haven't um, heard about this or aren't familiar with the Transcendental Argument, I do have an episode. It's quite a few back. In fact, it's around episode 20 or 18 or something like that um, where I did a presentation on TAG, on the Transcendental Argument for the Existence of God. And one of the formulations of that argument is formed in this way. Omniscience is necessary to justify knowledge. People have knowledge, therefore there is omniscience. And so that is a formulation of the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And so, David, you have rightly concluded that omniscience um, is necessary for knowledge. In fact, um, if you only almost had omniscience, which uh, I have a five-year-old. He just turned five, and um, he is one of those who almost has omniscience. And uh, <clears throat> But 
even if you would almost have omniscience, you would possess most, 98% of the knowledge in the universe, you would possess it, you would have it, you would know it. Um, in the knowledge that you do not possess, it renders everything else in the 98% that you do possess uncertain. Because since you do not know what you don't know, <laughs> um, you have no idea that what is in the knowledge that you do not possess could possibly contradict and provide clarity to something that you do know uh, or that you believe you know. And so the only way to actually have certainty um, is by having 100% complete knowledge. It's the only way. It's the only way it's possible. And so, David, you have... Uh, rightly come to that understanding. Um, and now here's the issue with us as creatures, as as non-omniscient beings, uh, we have significantly less than 98% of, of the knowledge that exists uh, within our universe. Um, and so therefore the ability for us to actually have certainty in this particular state um, would be impossible. Now, the question would be, right there with that statement, is if none of us possess omniscience, but yet we are certain about things. In fact, the statement I just made that without omniscience it is impossible to have certainty that was a certain knowledge claim that I just made there and in fact David you seem to also be uh, there where you believe that that is true and and you are certain that without omniscience uh, you you cannot have certainty about anything so the question would be <clears throat> is how is it that you have come into possession of this certain knowledge? How is it that you have come into possession um, of the knowledge that, um, that omniscience is necessary to justify knowledge? Uh, that, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. How is it that you have certainty about the laws of logic, the law of excluded middle, uh, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction. Um, while these were formalized by Aristotle, they pre-existed Aristotle, the law of non-contradiction um, applied to every human being that existed before the time of Aristotle. In fact, Gravity existed before uh, Newton formulated his laws of classical mechanics and, and before uh, Einstein discovered the, uh, the theory of general relativity. Gravity existed before Aristotle formulated the laws of logic into uh, formal laws that we can understand and uh, recognize 
we recognize these things naturally. We, we knew these things with certainty. We knew that contradictions were not true before the second law was ever formulated in, uh, uh, in any logic book um, by any philosopher. And so the question is that we have to ask ourselves, if we, if we know with certainty that we cannot have certainty without omniscience, and we can't even have these discussions, we can't even formulate arguments, we can't even have dialogues with people, we can't even uh, get up out of bed in the morning and squeeze toothpaste out of the toothpaste tube without assuming uh, the laws of logic, without assuming induction, without assuming the uniformity of nature. These things that we all believe with certainty, uh, we trust with certainty, we live our lives as if these are certain truths. But yet we don't have a foundation. We, we don't have a reason for why we know these things to be certain. And so I believe Scripture tells us why we know these things to be certain, and uh, we'll get to that. But every human being knows these things to be certain, and in fact, to try to deny certainty, um, you have to refute yourself. There's no other option. This is why the presuppositional apologetic is often called the impossibility to the contrary, because the only way to deny presuppositional Christian presuppositionalism, the only way to deny it, is to by re, is by refuting yourself. Uh, that is why whenever um, an atheist shows up to a debate to try to engage with a Christian, he's already lost it by showing up to the debate because he comes to the debate assuming things. He comes to the debate assuming that we're going to have a rational dialogue here and we're going to try to see which one has a fallacious worldview. Um, which one is going to engage in circular reasoning, which one is going to beg the question, uh, who is going to contradict himself. Uh, he assumes all these things. He comes to the debate um, planning on arguing, but yet he has no foundation for his arguing. The atheistic mathematician shows up to class planning on counting, but as Van Til said, he can't account for his counting. Um, and he and he has certainty about these things, and so um, the uh, several ways that someone might um, uh, attack the transcendental argument is, and, and I did this back on the tag presentation, so you can go back in there, and I'm not going to get into this into as much detail, but um, we make the claim that the Christian God, the triune God in sp specifically, is necessary to justify knowledge. And I think one of the things that is tremendously important to understand uh, within the presuppositional apologetic is the aseity of God. Extremely important for you to understand this, and that is God's non-contingency, that he is not dependent upon anything outside of himself for his existence and for um, 
for him to act in any way. Um, he is not dependent on anything. And this is why the presuppositional apologetic, I would also refer to as a reformed apologetic, as a biblical apologetic. Because for, and this is why our apologetic should start with theology, because theology matters. In theology, the Bible tells us that God has a saity, that God is independent. He's wholly other. He exists outside of his creation. In fact, he existed before his creation. So his existence and his attributes are not dependent in any way upon his creatures, upon his creation. And so the the issue with why I don't believe Arminianism specifically can use the presuppositional apologetic consistently, while there are those who do, um, you don't find it very popular within the Arminian circles. And I think it's specifically for this reason. They cannot consistently use it. Um, and that's why you see presuppositionalism um, very popular and very commonly used among reform circles. And that is because, coming back to the aseity issue, the Arminian fundamentally believes that God's demonstration of his salvific love and his desires to save and accomplish uh, the glorification of himself in the saving of a people is dependent upon the actions of free will creatures. It is not God who determines history. Um, it is the free will actions of his creatures. Uh, whether you're a Molinist, an Arminian, it doesn't really matter. Um, you believe that the will of man is the ultimate determiner of these things. That is a denial of the aseity of God. And presuppositionalism believes that all things are sourced within God. Um, Colossians chapter 2, um, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Uh, Proverbs 1, 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so all knowledge, all things, come from Christ. In fact, um, every fact that exists is a fact because Jesus Christ made it a fact. Um, or that fact comes from his own nature and being. And so that's what presuppositionalism says. Presuppositionalism says that even the laws of logic, the uniformity of nature, the, law, um, the laws of morality, um, moral oughts, are, are all grounded within the nature of God, within the nature of Jesus Christ. And that we have to begin our reasoning and our thinking um, with this transcendental foundation uh, and grounding uh, to our epistemology. In other words, we can't have a coherent epistemology without an omniscient revelation. And, and that, is, that is the presuppositional position. And so... Uh, we make the argument that the Christian triune God is necessary to justify knowledge. Um, and often the uh, uh, one of the attacks is we can know things without God. You know, I know things and I don't believe in God. Well, um, that's, uh, first of all, begging the question. That's assuming uh, your position that there is no God. Uh, and when actually questioned, 
uh, of how you can actually know things. And if you don't appeal to a transcendental foundation to how you can know things, you're going to end up collapsing into a position that you don't know anything at all. Um, I've had this happen repeatedly with, uh, with atheists. Um, I've had them tell me they live in a world of I don't know. I had a guy, his name was, uh, what was his name? Um, was, it, uh, was it Daniel or David? Uh, it was something like that. I was an atheist one time I was speaking to, and he told me that he lived in a world of I don't know. And simple question, do you know that you live in a world of I don't know? Uh, you cannot, it's, it's impossible. That's why we say the impossibility to the contrary. The God of the Bible is the necessary grounding and foundation to all knowledge. Now, you, as many atheists will then do, fairly quickly, I, I've noticed this, is they will quickly abandon their atheism, and they will become a Muslim. <laughs> and, uh, and here's the thing. The Muslim God... Uh, does not provide the necessary foundation for things like morality, interpersonal morals. He's Unitarian. Uh, this is why also, this is why I say Arminianism cannot consistently use the presuppositional apologetic is because there, the God described by Arminianism doesn't have a seity. And a seity is required for the presuppositional apologetic. The trial nature of God, the tripersonal nature of God is required for the presuppositional apologetic to actually work and to be coherent and to be a consistent worldview. Um, and so uh, when, if the atheist wants to become a Muslim, uh, then he's abandoned his atheism. He is now a theist uh, of one flavor. Um, then if he's actually going to become a Muslim, then uh, we can address him uh, as a Muslim. And we can address that uh, the God of Islam does not provide the necessary preconditions for morality. Um, and that the Quran, in fact, appeals to the Bible as being previous revelation, the Angeal, uh, which is the Gospels, the New Testament, um, and the Torah as previous revelation of Allah. And it tells us that the revelation of Allah cannot be corrupted. And so if the Bible is true, then the Quran is false. Um, which the Quran says the Bible is true. And so, uh, as David Wood recently in a video I watched uh, pointed out, is that for the Muslim to actually engage in da'wah or apologetics, he has to deny that the Quran is in fact true. Um, because the Quran says that the Bible is the previous revelation of Allah and that it cannot be corrupted. Uh, but yet, the Muslim apologetic is that the Bible has been corrupted. And he has to. You know, Logically, he has to hold that the Bible has been corrupted. Um, there's really no way around it. Um, so, the God of Scripture is the necessary foundation um, for, um, and his omniscience is the necessary foundation for our knowledge. And... Um, so we as Christians have a revelational epistemology. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. Um, and so we have a revelation. And God brings this revelation to us in two different ways, and this is what we're going to be talking about here a little bit, because I want to really get into Romans 1, because Romans 1 is very crucial 
to understand in this discussion is that we have a revelational epistemology. We don't have an epistemology that is based upon empiricism or rationalism. Uh, it, we have a revelation from God, both a special and a general revelation uh, from God that gives us a, a coherent theory of truth um, and a coherent foundation for knowledge uh, so that we can actually account for why we as image bearers of God have certainty. And so so we'll, we'll get into that. There is both a special and a general revelation. The special revelation is the scriptures. Uh, and then we there's a general revelation, and we'll talk about mostly general revelation here in um, in uh, Romans chapter one. Um, uh, all of our knowledge is conditional to the knowledge of God, to the omniscience of God. And our knowing something comes from the knowledge and omniscience of God. Our knowledge is contingent knowledge. Uh, we are not the primary source. Uh, God is the primary source. Without God's knowledge and without his omniscient and his revelation to us, uh, we would not know anything, uh, which is why when the atheist denies God, he ends up with the conclusion that he doesn't know anything. Um, one of the things that the ESV Study Bible says about Romans 1, we're going to read it here in a little bit, is that these verses show that salvation does not come through general revelation. And that's one of the things we're going to point out here, is that salvation is only possible through special revelation. Condemnation is what comes through general revelation. Um, so one of the things that comes up, and if you've ever listened to R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul is uh, kind of a unique individual in this discussion and he uh, um, holds to uh, a classical evidential apologetic methodology even though he is reformed and I'm not sure why he has it seems like he has a blind spot on this uh, he, him and Bonson um, had a good discussion about this and I think Bonson um, really ran circles around Sproul in this uh, discussion and uh, and this is actually something I wanted to, to bring up um, in, in jumping back to epistemology and it just sometimes uh, it just runs out of your mind so uh, when I was talking about we as Christians have a revelational epistemology uh, what is left if you deny the revelation of of God the special revelation his general revelation if you deny it as your grounding to your epistemology um, what you're left with is really two options. You're, you can either be an empiricist or you can be a rationalist. Uh, the empiricist is going to have uh, what's called a correspondence theory of truth. He is going to believe that, that uh, what is true uh, is that which corresponds with reality and that he can apprehend reality through his senses. So he is going to uh, believe that um, he can only know things to be true, and he can only have true knowledge through his senses, through seeing things. So, so they'll, they'll say things, well, you know, I don't see God, so therefore 
you know, unless I see God, I, I won't believe in him because there's no evidence for God. The empiricist will will often be hyper focused on the fact that he says he has not seen any evidence for God. Now, there's multiple problems with that because his argument really is that the what he says is the absence of ev- evidence is the uh, is evidence of absence, which is really quite an absurd claim to make because there's many things that exist that you have no evidence for because you haven't encountered the evidence for it yet. But that doesn't mean that it's absent. Um, and so that's the empiricist position. He believes that um, that which is true is that that which can be apprehended by his senses. Um, and uh, and that's his foundation. He has a uh, correspondence theory of truth. Now, the rationalist instead says, well, no, um, I think that um, truth is apprehended um, by logic and reason. So in other words, if you can give me a logical syllogism, uh, if you can um, if you can give me reasons um, and logic are the foundation um, to, to knowing things, uh, and he would have what's called a coherence theory of truth. So if something is coherent, uh, therefore it is true. Well, the problem is, is that both of these um, foundations uh, will refute themselves. Um, the empiricist, because he relies on his senses, uh, well, the simple question is, is how does he know his senses are reliable? Now, if he starts engaging in uh, trying to give logical and rational reasons for why his, then he's abandoned his empiricism. He's now appealing to rationalism, so he's abandoned his empiricist worldview. Um, but if he tries to say that his senses um, are validated by you could say anything, past experience, uh, he took a test. The problem is, is he has to interpret all those with his senses. So therefore, he is validating his senses with his senses. He's engaging and begging the question. He's, he's engaging in circular uh, validation, which uh, provides no rational foundation for truth. So he can't really know that his senses are valid. Uh, the rationalist is caught in the same conundrum. Um, the only way that he can validate the laws of logic um, and uh, rational argumentation is by using reason. The only way he can validate his reasoning is by using reasoning. And the only way he can validate logic is by using logic. And so he's going to violate the very laws of logic he's claiming to uphold. He says that, um, uh, for, for example, I actually had an evidentialist recently tell me um when he when he told me that uh, that presuppositional apologetics is invalid because it's circular, I said, "Oh, okay." Is um, is uh, circular reasoning fallacious? Is that is that a law? And he said, "Well, yeah." And I said, "Why? Just why?" Um, and all he did was engage every answer he gave me, begged the question, uh, doing exactly what he said was not allowed. And see, that's what's left, even for the evidentialist. Um, if he denies that the Word of God, the special revelation of God, uh, provides a foundation for his epistemology, if he, if, he doesn't, if he doesn't appeal to that, 
then he is left in the same boat as the atheist, as the unbeliever. He has to simply assume the laws of logic, but he won't give the proper grounding of them to God and uh, to his special revelation. And so uh, one of the things that comes up in this discussion here, uh, and I think it's very important, is what does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach that man's knowledge of God is immediate or is it immediate? And what I mean by immediate is that um, is perception through or by means of something else, uh, not a direct perception. That is what is meant by immediate. So uh, I'll give you kind of an example. So uh, the theologian or apologist who would say that the knowledge of God that is given to all men is immediate would say that man looks out, he sees the stars, he sees the rest of creation, he goes, okay, there is creation, there's design, you know, the teleological argument, um, or um, the cosmological argument, uh, everything that has uh, the beginning has a cause. Um, and so he looks at it and he mediates and he comes to the conclusion that therefore God exists. That's immediate knowledge. Um, what I believe the Bible teaches is that man has an immediate knowledge of God, meaning that his perception that there is a God, and in fact that, that God is the God of the Bible, is immediate. It's not something that he has to run through a logical syllogism to conclude, therefore, God. He knows in his heart, within his own mind, it is written with certainty that there is a God. And I believe that is what Romans 1 actually teaches. Now, one of the things that uh, came up as a contention between Sproul and Bonson in their discussion on classical apologetics versus presuppositional was Sproul made the, I think, rather astounding claim that um, that Calvin's own position uh, was that the knowledge of God is immediate. Um, I, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't know how he comes to that conclusion. Um, I'm, uh, by the way, I would really recommend um, those of you guys out there if you have not read The Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, I would recommend that you read it. It will definitely be worth your time. Um, but uh, Calvin says in Book 1, uh, in, his cha in Chapter 3, entitled The Knowledge of God Naturally Implanted in the Human Mind, just the title alone denotes that Calvin believed in immediate uh, knowledge of God. Uh, not mediate. Uh, but um, what uh, Calvin says in uh, chapter 3, and I'm just going to read this section here um, and let you determine for yourself whether or not Calvin believed that um, the knowledge of God was mediate or immediate. In uh, section 3 of chapter Three, book one, the knowledge of God naturally implanted in the human mind, he says. All men of sound judgment will therefore hold 
that a sense of deity is indelibly engraved on the human heart. That's immediate right there. And that this belief is naturally engendered in all and thoroughly fixed as it were in our very bones is strikingly attested by the contumacy of the wicked who, though they struggle ferociously, are unable to extricate themselves from the fear of God. Um, though, though Diagrosis and others of like stamp made themselves merry with whatever has been believed in all ages concerning religion, and Dionysus scoffed at the judgment of heaven, uh, it is but a Sardonian grin, for the worm of conscience, keener than the burning steel, is gnawing them within. I do not say with Cicero that errors wear out by age and that religion increases and grows better day by day for the world as it will be shortly seen labors as much as it can to shake off all the knowledge of god and corrupts his worship in innumerable ways i only say that when the stupid hardness of heart which the wicked eagerly court as a means of despising god become enfeebled the sense of deity which all of all things they wished most to be extinguished, is still in vigor, and now and then breaks forth. Whence we infer that this is not a doctrine which is first learned at school, but one as to which man is, from the womb, his own master, one which nature herself allows no individual to forget, though many with all their might strive to do so. Moreover, if all are born and live from the express purpose of learning to know God, and if the Knowledge of God, insofar as it fails to produce this effect, is fleeting and vain. I'll stop there. Uh, and actually, I want to jump up to chapter 2. He says this, which I really, I really like this. Um, uh, and speaking of Caligula here, he says, The most uh, audacious despiser of God is most easily disturbed, trembling at the sound of a falling leaf. <clears throat> so, um, I think it's pretty clear. Calvin believed that the knowledge of God was imminent and immediate within the nature of man. It was engraved upon their heart. It's um, uh, as a part of their very bones, um, he says. So let's go ahead and um, read Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse 16. I think this is very important here. Um, um, actually, I wrote a note here, and I want to read this here before we jump in there. I wrote this. While both general and special revelation mediate certainty to image bearers of God, without the inner working of the Holy Spirit, the gratitude and glory for the certainty mediated through these means are not given to God. The certainty mediated to the unregenerate man by general revelation is used to attack and engage in hostility towards the God who provided it. Um, so all men. So when your question, Daniel, is, is how is it that I have certainty? Well, the answer to that, Daniel, is I have certainty in the same way that you have certainty and the atheist has certainty exact same way there's no difference um all image bearers of god everyone made in the imago dei of god has certainty mediated through the means of creation 
by God into our own hearts, into our own conscience, and into our own mind, and our own ability to reason. Um, God has given every man certainty so that he can function within God's reality, even though he does not have omniscience. Um, God has given him certainty. And so the atheist, the agnostic, the pagan, has this exact same certainty. The only difference is, is he suppresses that certainty and unrighteousness and holds on to the things that have been revealed to him by God um, that he's certain about, uh, the laws of logic, uniformity of nature, and he uses these certainties, this knowledge, to battle against the God, to be hostile towards the God who has given it to him. And so let's read Romans 1, verses 16 through 32. Most of the time when people read this text, we start at verse 18, but I think it's very important that we start at verse 16 because Paul is laying out a contrast here. And I want to show that here. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's quoted from Habakkuk 2.4. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, that uh, word there is karekantone, karekantone, suppress, karekantone. We'll talk about that word here in a little bit. The truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And that is unapologetos. Uh, unapologetos. It is without an apologetic. And in fact, this is a negation of what is in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, where it says that we are to provide a defense, an, apolo, uh, an, apolo, uh, gaze, an, an apology, an apologetic. And this says that they here in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, are without an apologetic. Um, it prefixes it there with the alpha privative, the unapologetos, without an apologetic, without a defense, without a reasoned rational defense. Uh, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion 
for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And, th and though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what I would actually call this passage is the righteousness of God versus the wrath of God. So what we see here, beginning at verse 16, is we see the regenerate nature compared to the unregenerate natural nature. What man naturally is to what man has um, as a regenerate new creature, one who is born again. We see in verse 16 and 17, we see the righteousness of God is what is revealed from faith to faith. In contrast to the natural man who only has the wrath of God revealed to him. Notice in verse 18, it is not the righteousness of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is the wrath of God. This natural knowledge of man does not bring salvation to them. It only brings judgment upon them. It is only sufficient for their condemnation. It is not sufficient for their salvation. So we see this contrast here. If you start at verse 16, you see Paul establishing the contrast between the regenerate nature and the natural unregenerate nature. We see the contrast between the righteousness of God revealed by faith against the wrath of God revealed by nature. We see, um, we see faith in verse 16 and 17, belief and trust versus suppression of the truth and futile thinking left to the natural man. So we have the regenerate man, we have those that are in Christ having faith as opposed to the suppression of the truth, which exists in the other category. Uh, we see the righteousness of God compared to the unrighteousness of men. Notice how when speaking of the righteousness of God, it doesn't compare and say that the regenerate man here is now the righteousness of men. No, even the righteousness um, of those who have faith still comes from God. It is still sourced in God. But that is contrasted in the, re in the verses when it comes to what man is naturally. Um, the righteousness of God is compared to the unrighteousness of men. We see here also what Paul says, that it's the gospel, is the power of God. So we have the power of God contrasted with the inability and nature of man. Um, of natural man in verses 18 and on. We see um, that uh, according to Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 that we actually do have an apologetic uh, 
in apologetos. We have an apologetic uh, versus the natural man is without an apologetic, without an, a defense, an unapologetos. He is without an apologetic. We see that the regenerate man has wisdom. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom also and knowledge. In contrast to what does Paul refer to the natural man? He's foolish. We see in John chapter 1 that those who believe in him are in the light. And so that is contrasted with what Paul says is the, the natural man. He is in darkness. So we see this absolute contrast here that Paul is establishing between those who have the righteousness of God by faith through the power of the gospel, which is the power of God, not the power of man. Man is not the one who accomplishes this. It is God who accomplishes this through his own power. And when, so we see this sharp contrast. But what we see here is that they know this. They are suppressing this. Um, kata kantone, kata kantone. Uh, in Luke 8.15, it uses the word kata kantone also, but it says this in the opposite context. It says, as for that in the good soil, this is the parable of the sower, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast, katakantone, in honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. So, this word katakantone means to be held fast, to hold back, to detain, uh, retain, to tie something. In fact, in Acts, it's used in reference to tying a rope. So, the unrighteous here, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, this is verse 18, against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, in contrast here to the righteousness of God, who by their unrighteousness katakantone the truth. They suppress the truth. They are in bondage to their unrighteousness. They are held fast by it. Um, they are detained by their own unrighteousness. It is a moral inability. Um, the noetic effect of sin is that man has a moral inability that affects his ability to reason. So it's not that the knowledge of God is not clear to them, that it hasn't gotten through. It's the fact that they suppress it. They're tied down. They're held back because of their unrighteousness. It says here in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They know him. The message has gotten through. This is immediate. The knowledge of God is immediate. In fact, the fact, the, the point is that they have to suppress this knowledge. They have to actively push it down. Indicates that it's not immediate knowledge. It's an Im immediate knowledge. Um, it says um, that they are, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They know him, they know God, it says, but they don't um, honor him or give thanks to them. They become futile in their thinking because of their denial of God. 
they do not have an epistemology that makes any sense. They become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts become darkened. <clears throat> All the way down in verse 32, they know, not only do they know God, but they know his righteous decree. In Romans 2.14, it tells them that the works of the law are written upon their heart. In Romans 1.32, they know God's righteous decree. They know his righteous decree. They know God. But they suppress that truth because of their unrighteousness. Um, in Romans 2.1, we see Paul uses the term unapologetos uh, also in Romans 2.1. It's the only two times he uses it, Romans. But uh, uh, right after verse 32 here, he goes on in Romans 2.1 to say, Therefore, you have no excuse Oh man, every one of you who judges, and the no excuse there is unapologetos. They have no defense. They have no apologetic. They have no excuse. Uh, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Uh, this is one of the things that you will find out often, um, is that uh, often the accusations made by the unbeliever uh, will be judgments against their own position. They will often, often refute themselves. Um, in fact, I recently, <laughs> and I'm going to, I wasn't planning on this, but uh, I'm going to pull this up. Uh, there was a meme posted on Facebook, and I commented on it. Um it says it was uh, it was a meme showing uh, a, a Viking from I think that show called the Vikings or something. Um, it says it, it's okay for you to believe what you believe. It's not okay for you to insist that everyone else believes the same as you. Does anyone see a problem with that statement? What I wrote is I posted I said why is the maker of the meme insisting we believe like him? Seems like a double standard, a self-refuting statement. Let's use the brain God gave us, folks. Here's here's the thing. That is what the unbeliever is left with. He is going to judge others for that which he does himself. That's what he's left with. He's left without an apologetic. He's left without a defense. And so, um, Daniel, in answer to your question, is that as image bearers of God, the certainty of, of knowing God has definitely gotten through to all of his creatures. Uh, all of the image bearers of God know that God exists, um, Romans 1 tells us this very clearly. This knowledge is not immediate, but is immediate. And the most ardent denier of the God of Scripture is just as sure of his existence as what I as a Christian am. They're not more sure about God's existence. They are just as sure about his existence as I am. Um, and Everyone, every image bearer of God has certainty about particular things. Um, the laws of logic, the uniformity of nature, um, induction, um, laws of morality. They are, in fact, certain about these things. And uh, <clears throat> they simply suppress uh, the foundation for that certainty. And uh, so, all, all righty. Um, hopefully, Daniel, that answers your question. 
Um, and I haven't uh, bored you guys too much with that. Hi, this is Tyler from the Freed Thinker podcast. Do you have an atheistic or a skeptical friend in your life who challenges you and your beliefs? Have you ever wondered about the passages in the Bible that talk about keeping slaves or about bears mauling children to the command of God? Or are you just generally interested in issues related to theology, biblical studies, philosophy, and apologetics? Well, if you're any of those, I would love to invite you over to the Freed Thinker podcast to explore some of our content that we have available. On the Freed Thinker, we engage in a philosophically robust manner with some of Christianity's most staunch critics. The Freed Thinker podcast is the place where freed thinkers can think freely. Alrighty, um, I wanted to end the show today <clears throat> with a biblical argument uh, for presuppositional apologetics. And um, like I said, I recently had a friend who um, um, has uh, been arguing <laughs> with me uh, against the presuppositional apologetic. And... Um, I believe that presuppositionalism flows right out of the doctrine of sola scriptura. And in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, being always being prepared to make a defense, and apologain, apologain to anyone who asks you for a reason, logon, for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we notice here that it is a command from God to make a apologetic defense, an apologain, reasoned defense. In fact, it even uses the term reason here, asks you for a reason, logon, which is the word logos, uh, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this is a command of God. So the question I would have for the classical and um, evidential apologist who says that we cannot use Scripture um, because the unbeliever doesn't believe the Bible. And so you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. You can't use uh, the Bible to um, in your apologetic. You have to use evidential-like arguments. You have to use the cosmological argument. You have to use the teleological argument. You have to use the ontological argument, whatever their favorite argument is. Um, you have to use these things to bring them, and then once they believe, then you can bring Scripture to them. Well, that is not what the Bible teaches. Um, the doctrine of sola scriptura is, says that that Scripture is sufficient for... Every good work um, in the life of a Christian, including the work of apologetics, is apologetics, this is the question, is apologetics a good work? Is making a defense of the Christian faith, providing a reason, an apologetic, is it a good work? If it is a good Christian work, um, then making a defense is a good work, First Peter 3.15. It tells us in... Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, theunustas, breathed out by God, by the Spirit of God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Some translations say thoroughly equipped. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So if apologetics and evangelism is a good work, then Scripture thoroughly and completely equips us for that work. Um, and that is really the cry of the presuppositional apologetic, is that we start with the God of Scripture and his revelation as our grounding for, uh, for everything, because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, and the unbeliever, by denying that foundation, um, cannot muster a coherent, rational um, attack against the Christian faith. And if he does, he has to borrow um, certainties that only come from the Christian faith, that come from Scripture, in order to muster his attack against Christianity. And which is why the argument is, is that the God of the Bible is true, and the Bible is true because of the impossibility to the contrary. So there we go. That is... Um, all we have for today. Hopefully that was a blessing to you and hopefully um, I was able to help you Daniel there. So uh, Lord willing, we will be back next week and uh, we'll bring another episode. God bless. Don't you know that the unjust inherit God's kingdom and through Adam's eyes